So depending on the, the translation that you're using, uh, you may notice that this passage has three sections. And actually in the ESV translation that I was reading from, uh, the editors actually give us three different headings. And, and this is because each of these sections answers a really important question about Jesus. Um, and you could say that each of these sections shows something about Christianity 101. What is the whole faith about? So verse 18 to 20 answers the question of identity. So who is Jesus? And then the next section, 21 to 22, it answers the question of mission. Why did Jesus come? And then 23 to 27 answers the question of calling. How is it that we actually follow Christ in our lives? And that those really are the, the three most basic questions of Christianity. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? How do we follow him? And so if you're wondering, what does it mean to become a Christian? You're exploring Christianity. Those are three questions that you'll have to be able to, to answer from the scriptures. Or if you're saying, I really want to be able to share my faith and my hope with other people around me. Again, we, we need clarity. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? How do we follow him? So first, who is Jesus? And as I said, we're just going to be going verse by verse through this passage. So look at, at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And many people point out that all of the important events in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts by Luke are surrounded with prayer. They begin with prayer. And so this is no exception, this confession of, of Peter. It says that he is praying alone. And I had to read it a few times uh, when I was working on this. He's praying alone and the disciples were with him. So which is it? <laughs> uh, but I, I think it's, it's saying that he was, he was praying alone with his disciples who were, who were with him. And so he uses this, this prayer gathering with his disciples as a moment to pose an important question. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? And so he's, he's basically saying, if you go out onto the, the streets of first century Israel, and you walk up to people, you stick the microphone in their face, and you say, who is Jesus? What are they going to say? And so the disciples give their answer in verse 19. They say, well, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And so the, the disciples are essentially saying, well, Jesus, you're doing pretty well in the, the opinion polls here. The polls have come in and you're doing well, that, that people think you're a, a pretty great guy, that they think you are a great rabbi, a great teacher, that some would even say that he is Elijah, return, the Elijah promised in, in the prophet Malachi, or, or some people were saying that he's John the Baptist raised from the dead who had been beheaded not long before this. And then other people were saying, well, maybe he's, he's a great prophet, that it's been 400 years since we had a, a true prophet, but here Jesus is like Jeremiah, or he's like Isaiah. But I wonder, though, if Jesus had asked people today, if, if they had been in the 21st century, and Jesus said, who do the crowds say that I am, what would the answer be? 
And, you know, I doubt that anyone would say that, that Jesus is, you know, John the Baptist raised from the dead or a prophet of old who has returned. And if anyone ever says that, I would be really interested to meet them. Um, but I still think that if you were to go and talk to your friends, to your family, to, to ask just people in, in the culture at large, who is Jesus, you would probably get a fairly positive view similar to the crowds in the first century, that, that people, I think, for the most part might say, yeah, I don't necessarily believe in his miracles. I don't necessarily believe everything in the, the Bible is true. But yeah, Jesus, is he's a great moral teacher. Uh, he had a lot of great things to say. He's the, the founder of a, a great religion. And so people might put him in, in lists with Gandhi and Mother Teresa and other people that you might really respect and, and look at as somebody important. And even Islam, so in another religion, I mean, they, they teach that Jesus was a prophet. And so they have also a, a relatively high view of Jesus, a positive view of Jesus, at least officially. Uh, but all of those positive views still miss the, the true identity of Jesus. And look at, at verse 20. Then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Jesus asked the same basic question again, but he, he just looks at it from a slightly different angle. Not what do all the people out there think about my identity, but you as the people who have followed me and have heard my teaching and have seen the, the miracles, who do you say that I am? And so look at how Peter answers in verse 20. He says that Christ is the Christ of God. So this very simple answer that he is the, the Christ of God. And, it, and you can almost think of this as the first creed. This is the first Christian confession of Jesus and his identity. And so let's just quickly look at each of the words individually in, in this text. So first look at the word Christ. And, and a lot of times when we use the word Christ, we, we think of it as his last name, that he's Jesus Christ. But it's a title, and it means anointed one. And, and so really it's pointing to the three anointed offices of the Old Testament. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. So what Peter is saying is that, that Jesus is the anointed Messiah who is stepping into the role of the prophet, priest, and king to be the, the prophet to reveal the will of God, uh, the, the priest to make atonement for sin, the king to rule and govern and protect his people. And so that's the first word, Christ. But then a word that we often would miss is the word right before that, the word the. And it says that he is the Christ. So he's not simply a messiah, but he is the Messiah. So Islam says that, that Jesus is a prophet. The secular West says that, that he is a moral teacher, a religious leader among others. But what Jesus, or rather um, Peter about Jesus is, is saying is that he is the Messiah. So he's confessing the, the uniqueness, the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the the Messiah par excellence. He is in a class by himself, that he is the way, the truth, the life, that, that no one comes to the Father except through him. 
And later, um, after the resurrection, when, when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 4, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So he is the Christ. But then, notice the, those final two words in his confession, that he is the Christ of God. And, you know, Jonathan probably appreciates this, and, um, but uh, not to bore you with a Greek lesson, um, but that, that phrase, of God, in, in Greek it's called a, a genitive phrase, and, and it's very similar actually to even English, where it can have different nuances. To say he's the Christ of God, what does that mean? I mean, it could mean he's the Christ from God, coming from God as the source. It, it could be Christ of God in the sense that he belongs to God, of possession. And, and there are a few other nuances that you could see. But the, the key is that, that the identity of Jesus, who is Jesus, that, that we're going to miss his identity unless we see that he is closely associated and connected to God, that he's the Christ of God. Not just another prophet, not just another uh, philosopher, not just another teacher, but the Messiah of God who came from God, came to open a way to God through his life, death, and resurrection. And then it was all to the praise of God. And so that's the, the first question then, who is Jesus. But then moving into the next section of, of the passage, uh, we see why he came. Look at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And so Peter confesses Jesus to be the Messiah of God. And then instead of Jesus saying, you know, Peter, you got the right answer. Now go tell the world, go spread it. He says, actually, don't tell anyone. Keep it a secret. <laughs> it's called the, the messianic secret. Um, and it, it seems very strange to us at first. Why in the world would he say, don't tell anyone? And really, it has to do with the mission of Jesus on earth. Why it is that he came. Because nearly everyone at the time of Jesus in Israel was expecting a Messiah to come, expecting an anointed one. But they had this, this very certain notion in their minds of what they thought the Messiah would be, that they thought he would be this earthly king who would come and establish his throne in Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and, and rule with, with earthly power, political power. That was... When you said Messiah, that's the image that would pop into people's mind in the, in the first century. And so that's part of the reason that, that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in verse 22. It's interesting, you read the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, over and over again Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And I mean, it's just his favorite title of himself. And you say, well, why that title? Well, the, the title Son of Man was pretty much unprecedented in Jewish thinkers of that time. It wasn't the way that people talked about the Messiah. And in fact, there, were, there was almost nothing about the Son of Man except for one exception. And actually, you heard it in our Old Testament reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The Old Testament prophet gets this, this vision of one as the Son of Man 
and he's, he's presented before the Ancient of Days, and he, he rules, and his kingdom will be forever, and it will be established. And so that it's, it's you say, well, who is the Son of Man in Daniel 7? It's the Messiah. But it wasn't a, a title of the Messiah that, that people would have used just ordinarily in their, in their conversations in the, in the first century. And so Jesus then, by calling himself the, the Son of Man, is able to connect himself to the Messiah, to connect himself to the, the one in Daniel 7, but then he's, he's able to do that without all of the, the misconceptions and all of the baggage that came along with the term Messiah at that time initially. So it's really a, a, a brilliant move of communication, which, of course, it's, it's Jesus. But today, though, I think that people are, are still confused about the identity and the mission of Jesus. Uh, if, why did he come? And I, and I think, though, even though we're not expecting him to kick out the Romans because they're long gone, on some level, we still expect that, that the, the power and the work of Jesus in this life is going to be just clear and visible, some kind of earthly political power. And that's why people are always trying to marshal Jesus for political purposes, you know, to marshal him for conservative causes or marshal him for liberal causes or, or marshaling him to, to try um, to say that you know, the primary mission of Jesus is to end poverty or to establish perfect peace and justice in this life. And, and don't get me wrong, Jesus cares about poverty. He cares about truth and justice and he cares about politics. But that wasn't his primary mission on earth. That he didn't come as a politician. He didn't come as an earthly king. He didn't come as primarily a, a, an advocate who is going to, to set up a great social program throughout the world. So why did he come? What was his mission? Look at verse 22, and Jesus tells us his mission. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So there you have it. The, the mission is not to be the earthly king to kick out the Romans, but his mission was to, to come to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead, so that we can be accepted by God. And so you say, well, why did he, he suffer? It's because we deserve to suffer because of our sin and rebellion against God. You say, well, why did he die? It's because the wages of our sin is death. And then why did he come to rise again? And so that we could have, have life and hope as we trust in him and, and we're united to him. And so it, it's really important to see that, that the mission of Jesus wasn't one of exaltation. He didn't come initially to establish this worldly kingdom and worldly power. But instead, he came on a, a mission of humiliation of, of humility where he came to, to suffer and to die to lay himself down and what what he did by suffering and dying and humbling himself was actually something that no earthly king and no worldly power could ever do because earthly kings and earthly powers can ultimately only deal with external behaviors but Jesus by living and dying and suffering and rising again deals with the very root foundation of the human problem which is our sin and, and the death that, that flows from that. So he does what no earthly king can do and thereby establishes his king, that his kingdom 
that will have no end. And so that is why he came. Then the, the third and final section here, we see how we follow him. Because somebody may understand who Jesus is, why he came, but if we don't know how to follow him, then it, it just stays in the intellectual realms of our mind. It's not something that, that actually hits our, our lives and our hearts. So it's really important to know how we follow him. And look at Jesus tells us in verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And so the, the first call of faith then is self-denial. Denying self means that we deny um, and we rather confess our natural limitations. We admit that we can't see everything, we don't know everything, we're not in control of the universe, that even if we were perfect, we still wouldn't understand everything or see everything. So we confess and to, to the Lord that we can't do it. That's self-denial. But then also, denying self means that we confess our original sin, that, that we confess that we actually have a, a sin nature, that we're descended from Adam and Eve, and as part of that, we come into the world with a, a nature that is, is opposed to God, and it's going to, to bring forth opposition uh, to God. And, and so we can't boast anything from ourselves. But then also, denying self means that we confess our actual sin. So not just that we have a, a nature that is opposed to God, but then actually practically in our lives, daily things flow out from ourselves that, um, that are opposed to God, that we don't perfectly love God, we don't perfectly love the people around us, that we repeatedly do things our way rather than doing them God's way. But also... Denying self means that we admit that we can't save ourselves. That we admit that no re religious ceremony, no good work, no human effort can save us. That if we're ever going to be saved, it's only through the mercy and the goodness of Jesus for us. And so as you think about this, what it looks like to, to deny yourself in your own life, I, I find it helpful, an image actually that's in one of the little booklets out on our table there. If you've ever looked at it, there, it's called How Good Are You? It's a basics of the, the Christian faith. The last page has this picture, um, almost a humorous picture of the, there's the road splits and there's two cars and one's going on this road that's about to go off a cliff. The other one is, you know, going off into the sunset, you know, in this, this beautiful road. And so the, the car that's about to go off the cliff, the guy's in the driver's seat, he's really happy, having a good time. The other seat, the, the guy's in the passenger seat, and Jesus is in the driver's seat. Um, and so then the, the question that it's posing is, who's in the driver's seat of your life? And I, I was talking about this with a friend a few years ago when we were actually walking through that booklet, and I said, where do you see yourself? Wh which car are you? Uh, and he said that he wanted to, to be, he's the one in the driver's seat, uh, but he just wants Jesus in the passenger seat, so he can maybe have, have both. But the problem is that the, the way in which we follow Christ, it, it begins with, with self-denial. And it begins with taking ourselves out of the driver's seat of our lives, admitting that we, we can't do it, trusting in him. And, and that's the, the first step of, 
faith. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. So the second call of faith is then to, to take up our cross daily. But then you think, well, what does that mean? Take up your cross daily? Well, if you think about it, what was the cross of Jesus to him? The cross was the place where he was called to suffer in submission to the will of God for the sake of others. And, and really, that is also how we can think of our crosses, uh, that our crosses are places where we are called to suffer, we're facing suffering, and it's in submission to God's will, and ultimately it's out of love for others. So you can think about this question, if you look at your life, where are you suffering right now? We could probably all have some answer, someplace small or, or large. It could be physical suffering, weakness, sickness, cancer, pain. It could be relational suffering, a, a difficult family member caring for an elder, an aging parent, a, a difficult rebellious child, a cantankerous neighbor. Or it could be some kind of vocational suffering that your, your job is just really hard right now or you don't have a job, and you're trying to submit yourself to the plan of God, but there's suffering involved with it. And I think then as, as we start to see the, the places in our lives and our hearts where we're suffering, then it's, it's right and it's good to pray that God would take away that suffering from our lives. Um, Jesus, even as he was preparing to go to his cross, he said, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And that, that, that we can pray that as well of, Lord, I don't want to face the suffering. If you're willing, take this, this cup from me. But then Jesus also prayed, but not my will, but your will be done. And so to, to pray that, that will of submission, that prayer of submission to the will of God, uh, saying what, what Job says, that, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And so blessed be the name of the Lord. And then believing as well that even though our suffering can often seem pointless and that our suffering doesn't mean anything, that actually God may be giving the, the suffering as an opportunity to love and to serve people around us. And so you're comforted and so you're able to comfort others in the, in the way that you have experienced that comfort. Or you know what it is to have the, the loneliness and, and the pain and, and to wonder if there's hope. And so when you come across somebody who is feeling the loneliness and the pain and wondering if life is worth living, that you can encourage them that you were there and that Christ was there and that there, there's hope and there's life on the other side. But even if the, the suffering looks like it's not going to turn out in the end, that it might be the final moments, the, the hospice, the, the place where you're saying, this is, this is it, this is the suffering that's going to do me in, that, that in, a, in a very mysterious way, even that is an opportunity to, to love others, to, to display the, the beauty and the glory of Christ, to display the, the hope of, of the gospel and, and, and what it means to follow him. So if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Not a one-time task, but it's daily. And then finally, to, to follow me. And so that's really the, the third part of the, the call of faith. It's to follow Christ. And I think it's interesting that that's the most 
common way in the Bible of talking about Christians, that we're, we're followers of Jesus, that we, we stop following our own desires, our, our own way of thinking, the, the, the examples that we see in the world around us, and we orient ourselves behind Jesus, following him and trusting that we may not see the road ahead when we're following him, but he's not going to lead us off the cliff, but he's actually going to lead us exactly where we need to go. But as we wrap up then, and you look at the, the last three verses here in, in this passage, um, verse 24, 25, and 26, um, that Jesus gives us the three powerful motivations for following Jesus. So look at the first motivation, verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So if you're thinking, is it worth it to deny myself? Is it worth it to take up my cross daily? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? And will I lose what is most important in my life? And what Jesus is saying is that, that the, the way of the cross, the way to follow Jesus, is actually to, to lose our lives. And that's so different than what the world says, that, that look out for number one, you know, protect yourself at all costs. But it says, be willing to lose your life and you will save it. Then look at the second motivation. Verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. And so Jesus is saying, we need to be careful of what we value uh, because you may have everything according to the world standard. So you have the whole world. You're, you're richer than Bill Gates. You have the, the perfect relationship with you th what you think is the perfect person for you. you. You're talented. You cure cancer. You're famous, you're loved, uh, you have a great body, whatever it is you want to put in that place of saying, if I have these things that I'll have the world, that if you have all of those things without Jesus, then ultimately you have nothing. You have nothing of eternal value, nothing that will last, nothing that will be able to stand before God on the day of judgment. But then the opposite is true as well, that, that if you have nothing according to the world, if, if you don't have a job, you're a failure, there's nothing in your bank account, you have a track record of, of failed relationships, you're, you're sick, whatever you think would be losing the world, losing everything, that you can be in that place. And if you have Christ, you have something of eternal value, something that will be able to lead you from this life into the next and, and glory and, and hope. But then there's the third and final motivation, verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. And so you think, why should we deny ourselves take up our cross daily, follow Jesus. And then Jesus gives this warning, warning here. He says, if you are ashamed of me, then I am going to be ashamed of you when I come in glory to judge the living and the dead. And just 
picture that for a second. Jesus comes in his glory. It's the second coming, and then he shows up and he is ashamed of you or ashamed of me. Like that is one of the most terrifying thoughts, isn't it? To have Jesus ashamed of us. But then it's important to notice that Jesus doesn't say that he will be ashamed of people who sinned. He doesn't say he's going to be ashamed of people who failed. He doesn't say that he'll be ashamed of people who are weak and powerless. He doesn't say that he will be ashamed of people who are broken. But he says that he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. And so the, 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 the way then to, to be, have Jesus ashamed of you on the day of judgment is to have Jesus out there instead of here. To, have, to not have Jesus in your life, to be ashamed of him. And I think that as we, as we you know, ponder that, of, of what it looks like to be ashamed or not to be ashamed of Jesus, we think initially of really extreme examples. As you can think of the, a man named Polycarp, he was a disciple of John, so the first generation after the apostles. And he lived into his 90s until he was arrested by the Roman authorities. He was brought into the arena. And the proconsul uh, had compassion on him because they didn't want to execute an elderly 90-year-old man. And so he said to Polycarp, curse Christ and I will release you. And then Polycarp replied, 80 years I have served him. He has, had never done me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then they took him out and, and executed him. And I think about that, you know, other stories like this, modern stories like that of people paying the ultimate price for their faith. And, and, I, and I always wonder, what would I do in that situation? Would I be ashamed of Christ in the face of death? And of course, we can only pray that, that God would be faithful to us in that moment. But I also think that we can test often our reaction. What would our reaction be in that extreme moment? Well, how do we react in, in small moments, ordinary moments in life? And Phil Riken says, we hesitate to let people know that we're Christians. We're too timid to speak a word in his defense or take a stand on a moral issue. We are afraid to read our Bibles or, or pray in public. If we are ashamed of Jesus, will he be ashamed of us? And that's, a, that's a humbling question. If we are ashamed of Jesus, will he be ashamed of us? Well, only if we are ashamed of him. So as you, as you think about all the things that we've seen in this passage, we talked about his identity. So are you ashamed to say that he is the Messiah, not a Messiah? Ashamed to say that he is the way to life, not just a way to life? Are you ashamed to say that he is the prophet, priest, and king, and not just a prophet among many? Or as, as you consider his mission, why he came, are you ashamed to say that, that he, he suffered, that he, he died, that it was a, a path of humility? Or do, or do you want the kind of tame Jesus who's um, nothing more than a, a moral teacher? Are we ashamed of saying that he, he took the sin that we deserve on himself? Or are we ashamed of saying that, that he was 
victorious in his resurrection over sin, death, and the devil. And then as we consider our, our call to follow him, are we ashamed to deny ourselves or to take up our cross? And can we join what Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So ultimately, then, we can face anything, any weakness, any suffering, in light of Jesus' work for us. Because when we are weak, we are strong in him. And what we see in this meal, then, is, is a picture of Christianity 101. Uh, a picture of the, the basic tenets of our faith. So you say, who is Jesus? He's the, the Son of God who came and took on a real human nature, real body, real blood. And then why did he come? Well, he came to, for his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, to die, so that we could have forgiveness. And then how do we take hold of Christ? How do we follow him? Well, well we feed on him by faith. We, we, we come to him and and say, Jesus, you are my life. I'm going to lay my life down and let my life be, be your life. Deny self, take up cross. And so my prayer is that as, as you come and take this meal, that Christ will use this to, to strengthen you so that you know, today you can take up your cross, whatever that is. Tomorrow you can take up your cross. Each day this week you can take up your cross, whatever God is calling you to do, knowing that you have hope and, and life in him.